Hello, this is Manny Ramos, your host of Rise Up, Real Issues and Stories of Every One of Us podcast. First, let me talk about who we are. I'm Manny Ramos, a board member of PNAA, a past president of the Philippine Nurses Association of Central Florida. I'm a professor of nursing at Valencia College in Orlando and an adjunct faculty at William Patterson University. With me today is my co-host, Mindy Ofiana. Mindy? Thank you, Manny. Welcome, everyone. I'm Mindy Ofiana, Legislative Committee Chair for PNAA and Corresponding Secretary for PNAA Foundation and past president for PNA Southern California, and an adjunct professor at Charles R. Drew University, Department of Medicine and Sciences. Manny? Thank you, Mindy. Our guest tonight is Dr. Luigi Sandano, a board-certified general pediatrician who provides care for infants, children, and adolescents in Reed Crest, California. He earned his undergraduate degree from Rutgers University with concentrations in nutritional sciences and biochemistry. Shortly after that, he spent eight months in the Philippines providing volunteer work at a charity hospital for the poor. Upon returning to the United States in 2009, he started medical school at the University of Medicine and Dentistry of New Jersey. Following medical school, he entered pediatric residency at the Children's Hospital at Palms West Hospital in Loxahatchee, Florida. Since completion, he has served Palm Beach and Brevard counties in Florida as an outpatient pediatrician and pediatric hospitalist. In 2017, Dr. Sandana joined the Reedcrest Regional Hospital staff as a hospitalist and outpatient pediatrician. Since 2019, Dr. Sandana has provided care at the North Medical Campus Pediatric Center. Dr. Sandana, welcome to Rise Up. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, God. Dr. Sandana, we are really excited to have you at Rise Up uh, today. You know, We would like to know more about you. Were you born here in the United States or in the Philippines? So I was actually born in California, but raised in New Jersey and did, as you said, all my education in uh, New Jersey. And I just continued to go more and more south uh, until I reached Florida. And then I said, OK, I think that's the most south I can get. So let's move west and practice over there. Um, so, yes. Wow. So after completing your undergrad studies, you went to the Philippines to volunteer. Uh, please tell us more about that. So it's interesting because when I graduated college, I had thoughts of becoming either a physician or a teacher or um, maybe working for a philanthropic organization. And I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was given a very amazing opportunity to work in a charity hospital in Paranaque um, called St. Martin de Porres Charity Hospital. Mm -hmm. And I was able to get a really good breath of what uh, physicians, particularly surgeons, um, partake in. Um, but also in the same time, um, my grandmother was ill. Um, she had chronic kidney disease and was um, very sick. And so I was able to see what the residents um, were doing and how they treated my grandmother and the attendings. And so with all that, I said, you know what? I don't think I need to pick a being a teacher or being uh, working for a nonprofit or being a mm -hmm. physician. I think a physician does all those things. 
And so um, while I was there, I applied to medical school. And then upon my return here, did some interviews. And here I am now. Hmm. So most of the Filipino American nurses are become nurses through an influence of their parents, majority. Based on the, converse, the, the story that you have mentioned of your volunteer work, did that influence you to become a doctor and decide to become a, I mean, decide to become a physician? I think um, when you're a child going to a lot of these Filipino parties, the question is, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And eventually it becomes a reflex that, hey, I want to become a doctor, a reflex, I want to become a doctor. So I was conscientious enough at the end of my college career to truly decide if that was something that was that I had somehow ingrained upon myself, or is it something that I truly want to do? And so, yes, I would say initially, perhaps my parents, you know, saw that I liked the sciences. And so they, they put me on this path. Um, but uh, at the very end of it, it was uh, me who decided to choose to walk that path and, and become a physician. Hmm. All right. Thank you. Dr. Sandanam, a lot of lives were lost due to COVID-19. When the parents and your pediatric patients ask, is the COVID-19 vaccine safe? What do you tell them? I say that the vaccine is safe. It is continuously and rigorously looked at on a month-to-month, if not day-by-day basis. Here in the United States, we have a system by which we are able to um, inform the committees of adverse side effects. And so, yes, there are side effects to vaccinations, but is it safe? Yes. Even more important is to ask, is it effective? And that answer is also yes. To understand the adverse effects is important, though, and education is important for parents to understand. So what are the most common adverse side effects of the COVID vaccine? And also, for that matter, all other vaccines that we provide in the pediatric clinic. That's pain at the injection site, perhaps a bit of redness, but should not be spreading, right? Fever, typically not more than 102, and maybe it would last for maybe 36 to 48 hours, Those are your typical signs and symptoms of, you know, vaccine-related issues. But they are treated well at home, and children otherwise do well. Hmm. How can can children be affected by the COVID-19 virus? Well, COVID um, has, as we try to learn more about it, Um, does have a significant impact on children. Aside from the pandemic issues, the disease itself, um, the virus itself can cause respiratory illness. It can cause inflammation or an inflammatory cascade in children called MISC, which is serious. Um, When we talk about the severity and why we take this very seriously, is that there are 2 million cases in which children are affected by COVID, um, 20,000 hospitalizations, and very unfortunate is the amount of deaths that we've had. And a lot of those are 
in children under 10 years old and also under the four-year-old age group, which is why it's so important that we now have emergency use authorization for children under five years old. Furthermore, um, you know, you have some uh, sometimes episodes of myocarditis and pericarditis as well that affect the heart. And so there and so you have issues with sports performance. And we really have to be careful about clearing children for sports, um, even in that, especially in adolescence, um, when it comes to COVID-19. Right. So the. COVID-19 uh, vaccine has been approved for use in children, but uh, which ones uh, can they receive? Which among of the vaccines can they receive? So there's two. There's the Pfizer vaccine and also the Moderna vaccine. If we're talking between the ages of 5 to 11, that's strictly the Pfizer vaccine currently. If we're talking be, be uh, less than age five years of age, you have two options. One is the Pfizer vaccine up until age four, and then the Moderna vaccine up until age five, starting at six months of age. The two differences between these two vaccines is actually the primary series. The, the Pfizer vaccine is a series of three, whereas the Moderna is a series of two. Oh, I see. So, so there's and then the, you had the adolescent group, oh. which is also, by the way, Pfizer. Um, that's oh. greater than um, eleven, and so their primary series is between uh, is two dose series as well, um, at least three weeks apart. But as I have counseled parents, and there are some concerns with myocarditis, I would tell them to do it at two months. Um, separation to decrease those risks. And the pediatrician will inform uh, the parent and the patient of those risks. Hmm. So the emergency use authorization has been approved um, for children under five. Where are they available? Uh -huh. They are currently being rolled out. So even in my personal clinic, they're not ready yet, hmm. but we are working diligently to obtain them. I think that this is only new developments over the past couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we will get them soon. Um, and it should be available in your um, local pediatrician's office. Your medical home is where we would like you to get it because your pediatrician understands your medical history, um, whether uh, you need certain spacing or um, if you're an immunocompromised child, you too could get the COVID vaccine. Um, but uh, you may need additional doses, perhaps, to obtain the uh, required titers hmm. for protection. For children who, who got their vaccine, the COVID-19 vaccine, is there a chance that they could still get COVID infection? Yes. So... Um, there, as we know that there are many variants and even sub-variants, we've already lived through um, Omicron, for example. And so it is possible to obtain it. You know, there are studies that show that four months um, after the primary dose, the immunity begins to wane. And so it is important that you get those booster doses. 
those booster doses will provide you protection against the other subvariants, for example, BA2 or an Omicron, for example. Hmm. If the child already got COVID-19, should they still be vaccinated? Because of what we just discussed about that they can still get it and therefore they can still have those severe diseases that we mentioned, the answer to that is yes. The follow-up question would be, well, when can they get it? And typically, you do have a response from the natural immunity. However, studies show that that's just not significant enough compared to vaccine-induced immunity. And so when we would do it here in my clinic, we would do it three months after the initial onset of symptoms or three months from a positive COVID test. Hmm. So while some parents have been counting down the days and are eager to vaccinate their kids, others are hesitant and have lingering questions. What is your view regarding COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy? I think the hesitancy in regards to COVID-19 vaccine is very parent-dependent. Some parents are unsure, perhaps due to the rapidity or the quickness of how this vaccine evolved. And so maybe you would need to educate them on how this even happened, uh, how quickly, uh, I believe it's called Operation Warp Speed, uh, you know, was able to accomplish this amazing task. Um, Other parents are concerned about the side effects. So you really do have to pinpoint the concern. So as a practitioner, you would have to ask them so that you can really target and um, inform them of uh, the conditions by which they have their concerns. Dr. Sedana, related to the um, variant, what is the dominant variant right now? When one speaks about dominance, typically we want to really say which variant is most transmissible. And that would still be in the Omicron variant. Uh, And so um, it is easily spread. And as these, as the virus Uh, continues to evolve, it does become more transmissible because the host does not usually um, have an increased mortality as the virus continues to evolve. So Dr. Sandana, if if a child uh, got COVID, can, can they be infected by the other variants? I want um, to draw a parallel now between um, how we see COVID and also how we see influenza on a yearly basis. Because the answer to that question is yes. Because you got one variant does not mean that you are no longer susceptible to the others. It may help you, though, because these viruses have a lot of genetic similarity which can help you. Your, auto, your, your autoantibodies will recognize these things. So actually, as you get the booster, or as you say, get another flu vaccine on a yearly basis, that should protect you. Um, 
The point, though, is for the for these vaccines is not necessarily to decrease the infectious rate, but to decrease the severity of the illness. So in COVID, that means decreasing the risk of death, mortality, as well as hospitalizations. Same thing for the influenza vaccine. The point of the influenza vaccine is just, it's not so that you can, you won't get the common cold. It's just so that our children won't be hospitalized because of it. That is the end point of the studies. And that's what we, what we really should focus on. Yes, the majority of children will have a upper respiratory illness that could be treated at home. But as we mentioned earlier, we have 2 million cases, several hundred deaths in the United States. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's enough. Mm -hmm. We had to think about this on a societal perspective and also for the individual patient. Dr. Sandana, I wanted to ask, is there a difference uh, in the uh, Pfizer vaccine uh, as far as what they are authorized for, um, you know, in the different age groups for the children? That's a really good question, actually, because in these studies, it's important to start with a low dose that will provide us with the most effective number of titers for each individual population. And of course, lower, you know, as we get younger and younger, we want to make sure that we're not overwhelming the immune system of the child either. But yes, each um, age group ha is actually a different amount. So okay. for example, the adolescent group has 30 micrograms, the mm -hmm. five to 11 age group has 10 micrograms, and then the six months to four year for Pfizer has three micrograms. So okay. what I like to tell parents is that, you know, we're just not, that these studies are not just, okay, we're going to take what the adults use and we're just going to go ahead and transpose mm -hmm. it to the children. Mm -hmm. Absolutely not. These children have their own separate studies that are verified and will continue to be verified and adjusted as necessary. For example, the Pfizer vaccine in the, in the six month to four year age group initially it was a two dose in the study. Mm -hmm. However, that did not show enough efficacy and therefore mm -hmm. a third dose was added. So they start as low as possible, the, the, the lowest number of doses as possible and then increase as necessary. And so I think that's an important thing to discuss right. with parents because right. you know we are taking this very seriously. We treat you know, children are not small adults. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They are um, just as important. And so we cannot always compare the two. And we do um, take this uh, into consideration. And the studies are tailored to them. For our viewers and listeners uh, who, who, with that information, I'm sure that that will, uh, I know they have a lot of questions about dosing, you know, and their mm -hmm. concerns about the vaccine. So thank you for sharing that information. That's a very uh, important information that you've just shared about dosing of the vaccines. Thank you, Dr. Sandana. Of course. Hmm. As you and I know, the COVID-19 pandemic has been challenging for everybody including kids and teens. 
there's continued disruption from routines, changes at school, and isolation from friends and family can affect kids' mental health. How is COVID-19 affecting children and teens' mental health, doctor? Unfortunately, quite negatively. I have seen in my own practice an increased caseload of children who were well and did amazing at school. And that one year or that one and a half years of being at home really affected their ability to interact effectively with their peers. Um, There is a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression that I'm seeing. Um, Whether that is due to the decreased interaction, that social interaction that children get from school, um, or is it from an increased use of social media in adolescence, which we know has an impact on their mental health. Each child would probably has a different etiology in regards to their mental health um, issue and condition. Um, But nevertheless, we need to address that. And as uh, practitioners, we need to be even more aware um, in order to advocate for our patients and make sure that we get them the right resources um, that they need, because it is a transitionary period um, that they're undergoing. Even now, even though we've been in school now for a few months, a year even, um, we need to be more diligent in making sure that we care for the mental health needs of our children. I see. Before we close, uh, Dr. Sandana, uh, we also have viewers and listeners who are parents of the very young. So for parents of under six months of age, um, how, what is your message to, uh, for them to how to keep their uh, children uh, safe? I think using some common sense really helps in this sense. I jokingly always say that here in pediatrics, we made um, quarantining popular, um, you know, because young children under uh, four weeks of age uh, typically say we need to cocoon the baby to make sure that they are not exposed to illnesses and viruses and bacteria. Because as you know, we start vaccines at as early as six weeks of age, usually though at two months of age. There is no strict guideline in regards to quarantining during this period. But for my patients, I tell them just be very aware of uh, those who are ill, your environment, where you bring your baby. And if you ever need to tell a loved one, for example, that you cannot attend a gathering, that you can just blame your pediatrician for (laughs) not going. And that's okay. You can blame us for it. (laughs) All right. And that is all that we have for this episode. I want to thank our guests, Dr. Luigi Xendana and my co-host, Mindy Ofiana. Our director and producer, Rodney Cajudo, Carol Robles, PNA Chair of Communications and Marketing. 
our advisor, PNAA Foundation President Nancy Hoff, and our executive producers, PNAA President Dr. Mary Joy Garcia Dia and PNAA Executive Director Carmina Pautista. Join us here every week on Rise Up. Until then, keep on rising, and we'll see you next week. This publication was made possible by Cooperative Agreement CDC RFA IP 211106 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of CDC HHS.